Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us with Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our series on the book of Philippians entitled, The Fellowship of the Gospel, with a message entitled, Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing. So let's turn now to Philippians chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, and join Dr. John Newfound. It is so easy to get distracted. Back in the era of the Soviets, Nikita Khrushchev used to tell a story of a time when there was a wave of petty thefts from factory workers stealing right out from under their own factories. And so to put a stop to it, the authorities put guards around all the factories. At one timber works in Leningrad, on the first evening of the new guard, out came one of the workers with a wheelbarrow, and on the wheelbarrow was a large bulky sack. Immediately, the guard stopped him and said, what do you have in the sack? And the worker said, he just had throwaway shavings and sawdust to heat his house. But the guard didn't buy it for a second. Open that sack and pour it out. And so the worker did. And it was, as he said, just shavings and sawdust. Well, that kept happening every single night of the week. And the guard was frustrated for he knew something was up. This worker was one of the worst thieves in the factory. And one day in frustration, the guard made the worker a promise. If you tell me what you're smuggling out of here, I'll let you go. So just tell me, what are you taking from the factory? And to that, the worker smiled and said, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. You know, it's so easy to be distracted by sawdust and not see the wheelbarrows. And as funny as that story is, it reminds me of how often this is also true with the things of God. We become distracted with lesser things. How often have I heard Christians argue about whether it's a good thing to have large churches or or whether the amount of money a church should put into their building was a good thing or not, and all the while we've become distracted from the main thing, which was the reaching of the lost. You know, in our study of Philippians, we've noticed that evangelism and the advance of the gospel into the Roman Empire is the central thing in the book. The Philippian church was a near-model church which partnered with the Apostle Paul in order to expand the advance of the gospel. But now they were concerned. Was the gospel under siege now that Paul had been thrown into prison? And Paul's answer is, no, don't let yourself be distracted by my imprisonment. Rather, focus your attention on the main thing. And the main thing is that for the first time ever, the Roman Praetorium, the elite Roman guard, is now talking about the gospel even within the very household of Caesar. But there's more. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's see if we can get some perspective. Paul wrote the Philippians around A.D. 61. He would have written his letter to the Romans perhaps about five years earlier during his third missionary journey. And as it would seem, there was, at the time of the Roman letter, an already established church, an established collection of believers in Rome. Furthermore, when one reads Romans chapter 16, the last chapter of Paul's letter to that church, we find him greeting a large group of believers there, but mentions none of the apostles, not even Peter. That would seem to indicate that the church came into existence without an apostle having begun that church. And so we can say with a fair degree of confidence that the church in Rome was begun without an apostle. So how did that church begin? 
Again, we can't say with any certainty, but it might be helpful to notice several things. We have a reference to this from a Roman historian named Suetonius. He refers to an event which would have occurred in A.D. 49. There he says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Now, many historians have taken this to mean that the preaching of Christ in Jewish synagogues was creating a great controversy in Rome. If that's right, it must mean that Christ was already preached in Rome 12 years before Paul arrived in that city as a prisoner. In consequence of this disturbance, Claudius the emperor had expelled the Jews from Rome. Now, Luke makes mention of this in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 2. There he says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, is it possible that Aquila and Priscilla were a part of planting the church in Rome? That may well be the case. Now, however the church was begun, we're going to assume that it began within about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, and that in A.D. 49, it was still a primarily Jewish phenomenon, although it had reached out to some Gentile Romans. Then when the Jews are kicked out of Rome, the only people left in the Roman church are Gentiles. Now, by the time Paul writes the Roman letter, it would seem that the Jews are allowed back, and by then the church is comprised of both Gentiles and Jews. But, By all accounts, the church had not been successful in breaking into the wider Roman world, and that may be because they were somewhat intimidated by the imperial might of Rome. They had already been expelled once, as well as the emphasis given on the various Roman gods and goddesses throughout the city. How were they to break into that? But Paul's imprisonment, instead of intimidating the church in Rome, actually emboldened them. Now, that's because it would seem that a delegation of believers from the church were permitted to visit with Paul, and they'd have watched his fearless sharing of the gospel with the Roman imperial guards. Watching Paul, filled with joy because of the opportunities God had sovereignly provided him, while in response, many timid Christians in Rome who were frightened by their opposition suddenly began to get bold. You see, most people are not brave on their own. See, that includes most Christians. Most people are intimidated when outside pressure demands they become quiet. Maybe they have a job where the expectation exists that they should be prohibited from sharing their faith. But every once in a while, someone takes the lead and models courage. And that modeling of courage inspires others. You know, courage is like a cold. It's catching. Think about this when it comes to warfare. Who jumps out of a trench and races towards the enemy on their own? Well, precious few would ever do that. But courageous leadership will inspire men to do things they simply would never do under any other circumstances. And when someone you know begins to model courage and evangelism, it is rather amazing how that affects others. You know, I remember hearing the testimony of a man who had become a very dear friend of mine, who is the the pastor of a mainline church in Canada. He and his local church made a stand on scriptural authority, the nature and the necessity of the cross, and on Christian sexual ethics. And he and the church he pastors took a stand for the gospel. They lost their church building. He lost his pension and his standing in his denomination. But what came out of that was a courage of those who watched him to take the same stands he had taken. Did it cost him a lot? Yep. He had even received death threats. What was the result? Others who believed the word also became bold. Now, just to be clear, boldness doesn't mean you don't feel the pressure of opposition. 
Paul himself was not a superman. He could not simply sail through all of life's difficulties and then feel no pressure whatsoever. In fact, listen to how he describes his own struggles in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 to 9. There he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, courageous people are not the superheroes you see in the movies who never miss when they shoot and whom the bad guys just can't seem to hit. See, courageous believers get hit all the time, and they have the same uncertainty that we all have. But they have learned to believe that God is meticulously sovereign and that he is using them and their circumstances to advance his gospel. I have another friend who is a retired school teacher now, but while he was still a teacher, had found effective and wise and within the law means to share his own faith with his students. Other teachers have asked him how he did that, and he has inspired a boldness. I mean, that's not cocky or in your face, but wise and winsome. The thing that so fascinates me about the book of Philippians is that Paul's imprisonment was actually an opportunity for the gospel and that this opportunity was orchestrated by God. But interestingly, the opportunity Paul had to share the gospel with the Roman imperial guard had a spin-off effect. It produced and multiplied boldness in the believers in Rome who thought that Paul's example could be followed by them. Even though they had been exiled from Rome once before, they would become bold once again. You know, when we come back, we will find that although boldness is good, it also has another interesting side effect a more negative one, that we might not have anticipated. Some Christian leaders watching Paul became envious of his success and his boldness and that this envy was distracting from the principal Christian message. Envy and rivalry were about to be felt and what to do about that. And the book of Philippians gives us a surprising answer what to do when we find some believers with less than ideal motives underneath their actions. As we continue to unpack Paul's words in these verses to the church in Philippi, we're beginning to see this emphasis on a partnership in the gospel more and more. His reminder to always keep the proclamation of the gospel the main thing is an important one, particularly in the light of opposing forces. In fact, it was Paul's boldness while in prison that gave the believers the courage to continue to preach the word. But how did he deal with the side effects of that courage? And what can we learn from this? Join us to find out right after the break. Many of us find ourselves at home more than usual these days. The solitude can be a refreshing discipline, but a bit more challenging when it's thrust upon us. Today, I wanted to remind you of the many Bible teaching resources you can access for free through Back to the Bible Canada. Every weekday, listen to Dr. Neufeld on this radio station, online at backtothebible.ca, or through our podcast or free mobile app. Not only today's program, but there's a vast library of Bible teaching series online. Other resources include our weekly young adult program, In Doubt, or the daily airing of Laugh Again. And most recently, for five weeks beginning March 22nd, 
we'll begin to air a special Bible teaching video series aired every Sunday morning available at backtothebible.ca or the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information about all of these resources and more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18a. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, this text is somewhat puzzling. But before we speculate what Paul might be referring to, let's have a look at what we know for sure. Whoever these preachers were who preached Christ out of rivalry, we do know that they were not false teachers. If you go to chapter 3, verse 2 of Philippians, when Paul speaks of false teachers, he never says, nevertheless, as long as Christ is being preached. Rather, he says, and I'm reading from Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I want us to notice the distinction Paul makes between what we might call inner motivation and the outward truth and accuracy of what is being preached. Paul never said to false teachers, well, a lot of what you're saying is wrong, but nevertheless, as long as you're mentioning Christ and more people are interested in Christ because you mention him, it's really okay. Paul never thought that. He sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with false teaching. You can read about that in 1 Timothy. And there he called false teachers wolves seeking to devour the flock. So whoever he is referring to in Philippians 1, when he's speaking of those who afflict him in his imprisonment, he is not referring to false teachers. He is referring to people who preach the good news of the pure gospel and yet were motivated by rivalry. What they said was good, but their inner attitude was not. Now, here's what we don't know. How did these people who taught the gospel accurately think, according to verse 17, that when they preached the gospel rightly, they would afflict Paul, making his life harder than it already was? Of course, we can't know for sure. We weren't there. And a number of theories have been presented, and I won't go into all of them, but I do have a theory of my own. Here goes. We do know that when Paul arrived in Rome, even though he was a prisoner, there was at that time no apostle in Rome. The church in Rome was not started by an apostle, nor as far as we know, were there any apostles there to guide it. And by the way, that's what makes the book of Romans so fascinating. Many, myself included, think that since no apostle was there to guide the church, the letter contains basic apostolic teaching, standard teaching that Paul would have given to any church as he taught them the basics of the faith. So, for instance, when Paul first preached the gospel in Philippi, he would have given them the contents of what we now have as the book of Romans. But he never got to do that in Rome. And so he put his basic teaching down in a letter. And getting back to the drama in Philippians, Paul has now arrived in Rome. Now, even though he's in chains, still for the first time, the church in Rome has access to a living apostle of Jesus Christ. And in one second, his appearance overshadows all other leaders in that church. So if you want an analogy, it would be like playing on a junior hockey team and you're the star and suddenly Sidney Crosby shows up. Suddenly, you're not the star anymore. But Paul is in prison 
And these men, inspired by the thought of losing their place of prominence as central leaders in the church, redouble their efforts to prove their effectiveness. They used their freedom to gain a larger crowd than Paul would get in his present circumstances, reaching out to non-believers, trying to show that Paul in prison is nowhere near as effective as they are. They hope, with their greater success, given their freedom to move around just as they want, they will grieve Paul in prison or will put him in his rightful place. And then maybe if he's released, he will just go away. He's not needed here in Rome. And Paul, seeing this as a motivation, at least if I'm right in ascertaining the situation as I have, Paul simply says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In other words, the man who sees the meticulous sovereignty of God in his imprisonment also sees the meticulous sovereignty of God in the rivalry of fellow gospel preachers. You know, very few of us can ever be like John the Baptist was when Jesus began to get bigger crowds than he ever got. John simply said, he must increase and I must decrease. And Paul said, nevertheless, as long as Christ is being preached. Look, rivalry, well, that's just a part of our lives. I mean, the green monster called envy so quickly comes to the surface. You know, athletes struggle with it. Students in school do. When someone they think they can beat gets better marks than they do. You know, it's a matter of our work environments. Politicians, especially at election time, attack each other sometimes mercilessly when they see someone doing something better than they are. And what's surprising to some is that pastors and Christian leaders are not immune from this either. You know, pastors will sometimes hear people saying, that they're going to another church because that other guy preaches better than they do, or, or something in that other church is so infinitely better than what's being done in their home church. You know, it's hard to see a church across town growing to become a very large influential church while the, the church another man shepherds is struggling to reach people and, and just make the budget. It requires an uncommon grace to say, I'm so happy for those guys across town who are growing at an amazing pace. But fascinatingly enough, Paul models that very attitude. He has kept the main thing the main thing. He thinks that the advance of the gospel is the main thing. Yes, he really does. And that, might I say to all of us, is one of the most difficult things we will all need to learn. If Christ is increasing, as John the Baptist said, if that really means that I must decrease, then let me decrease so long as Christ is being declared. I think we can all learn from this, that motivation for sharing the gospel is sometimes a strange and a complex thing. Sometimes people have been led to Christ by people whose incentive for sharing the gospel was anything but pure. Sometimes people have wanted to share the gospel so that others in the Christian community could admire them. Now, to be clear, when that happens, we need to gently and carefully correct a brother or sister, but we must be careful that we do not discourage them from sharing the gospel. But what can we learn from this scenario? I like what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now think of the image that he's just given. On the outside, we see a broken, damaged, cracked, and worn old clay pot. But inside is a priceless treasure. See, in many ways, is this not the history of the church itself? 
If our hope in the advancement of the gospel lay in our getting it right most of the time, well, then I fear not much would ever have happened. And why are things like this? Why are some teachers and preachers and evangelists and pastors and elders and deacons and everyday gospel people so flawed? Well, because the work of sanctification in us is not yet complete, to be sure. But, says 2 Corinthians, it also has this about it, that when the gospel advances, we may see that the power of the gospel is not from us. It is from God. Yes, it is true that the gospel advances through God-ordained opportunities, as we have seen in Paul's imprisonment, and in the amazing boldness that his bold example inspires. But it is also true that the gospel sometimes exposes our human flaws. And if we forget about the main thing, we will spend our lifetime exposing other people's flaws until we begin to suspect the motivation of everyone. Soon we think the church is about making sure that everyone's attitude is exactly as it should be. And in the process, we no longer encourage each other, but we judge each other. See, we need to get our eyes beyond the weaknesses and failures of fellow believers, and we need to become gospel people. That means when the gospel advances, we will rejoice. So here's a part of the mystery of how the gospel advances. It advances according to the design of God, not through the genius of people. Let us then consider what a joy it is when it advances and what a greater joy it is when we play an active role in it. Let's rejoice about the things that are reasons for rejoicing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. John, that's a challenging message for us today because I think the reality is we do have competitive churches. And yet within that competition, we still see people coming to the Lord. Is this the same thing that's happening in Paul's day? You know, there are these principles that are always there. Churches are flawed. The pastors that lead them are flawed. You know, we just have not got a perfect Christian leader or a perfect Christian church. I think it was Spurgeon that said, you know, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because you're going to make it imperfect. Uh, The fact is that we have these wonderful treasures of the gospel in these jars of clay, which include also broken churches, broken institutions that we've created. I think the good news is that if we get our eyes on gospel proclamation as our number one concern, we might be able to get beyond that. I mean, I'm not just saying that, you know, we need to do that and don't worry about false motives. I think we need to correct motives, but we need to remember that gospel proclamation is front and center. So when a church grows that we may not like, even though they're preaching the true gospel, rejoice, pray for them, be encouraged. What does it mean for us to truly become gospel people, to keep the main thing first and foremost? Well, today's lesson has given us the kind of perspective that we must strive for when it comes to advancing the kingdom. I hope you'll join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld teaches a message on making our lives count. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right. 
Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take 5. These are five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.